Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On today's episode of the show, I'm going to be talking about the movie M, a 1931 crime thriller and proto-noir from Austrian-born director Fritz Long uh, that played at the Whitney Humanities Center, Yale's movie theater, uh, as part of the uh, Treasures from the Yale Film Archive series last night on Wednesday, uh, January 31st. Uh, But not to fear, New Haven listeners, this movie is readily available to uh, really everyone with a library card uh, and, of course, a Best Video membership. But anyone with a library card in the uh, public library system here in New Haven can watch M uh, through a streaming service called Canopy, which is K-A-N-O-P-Y, that the library subscribes to. So if you search for Canopy uh, and uh, log in with your library uh, card number, and then search for the movie M by Fritz Long. You'll be able to watch this uh, for free. Thanks, thanks to your membership there. Uh, so because I, I introduced uh, this movie, which is part of a series organized by Yale film archivist Brian Meacham uh, that showcases some of the 35mm and 16mm prints uh, available in the Yale Film Archive uh, presented on the big screen uh, kind of in the format in which they were originally meant to be seen and in which they were originally produced, uh, I thought I'd share some of the the notes uh, that I, I wrote up about this movie uh, that I shared with uh, viewers last night. And then on the second half of the show, uh, I'm going to play a recording of my introduction. Uh, it's about uh, 15 or 16 minutes uh, before the screening of M uh, at the Whitney Humanity Center last night. So first, uh, let's let's kick off with the the notes that I uh, that I wrote up that were part of a, a handout for last night's screening uh, for M by Fritz Long. So towards the end of his life, Austrian-born director Fritz Long, who was born in 1890 in Vienna and died in 1976, was fond of telling a story about how Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels had offered him the top position in the German film industry soon after the Nazi Party came to power in 1933. Hours after Goebbels made the offer, the story goes, Long packed his bags and fled to Paris, not waiting even a day to remove money from his German bank account. Alas, that story of a morally uncompromising director immediately and courageously leaving his adopted homeland in protest of Nazi rule is, to put it kindly, a bit more complicated than Long would have liked. Long did indeed flee Berlin, but not until months after the supposed meeting with Goebbels, uh, and I say supposed because Goebbels, who was a meticulous notekeeper and uh, diarist, um, doesn't have any mention of uh, of this meeting with Long, who was at this point in 1933 in Berlin, one of the uh, kind of most household names among filmmakers. He was a, a very big deal. Um, and for someone like Goebbels not to mention a meeting with Long in which he offered the reins of the German film industry uh, is a bit suspect. But nevertheless, Long did flee, just not exactly uh, when he said he fled. Uh, He did go on to direct a quartet of unambiguously anti-fascist movies in Hollywood in the 1940s, uh, movies like uh, Manhunt, Hangman Also Die, The Ministry of Fear, and Cloak and Dagger. Um, But he was also a dedicated German nationalist uh, in his youth, and in particular in the 1920s when he made a name for himself as the, one of the premier uh, and most respected German filmmakers. His last pre-war German movie, Dust Testament is Dr. Mabuza, from 1933, was indeed banned by censors for its implicit and indeed explicit criticism of the Nazi party. Uh, Long took uh, phrases and slogans and hateful speech spoken by actual Nazi leaders and 
put those words into the mouths of the kind of criminal and murderous masterminds that populate his crime series uh, following Dr. Mabuza. But Long was also admired by Goebbels and Hitler for his monumental mythological Weimar-era epics Die Nibelungen from 1924 and Metropolis from 1927. Although Long's heroic escape story may not quite jibe with reality, its murky, fatalistic tension between truth and fiction is a pretty perfect encapsulation of what Long did so well in over four decades as a filmmaker. Walk this fuzzy line between grandiose fantasy and hard-boiled documentary, imbuing the wild imagination of the former with just enough gritty detail from the latter that even the most outlandish scenarios bore a haunting, poignant resemblance to an all-too-recognizable modern reality. So Long's 1931 urban crime film M, a landmark early sound movie and proto-noir, uh, and by proto-noir I mean kind of established the template for what film noir and all crime TV shows, movies... Uh, episodes, even podcasts like Serial, what the kind of methods that those shows and uh, artistic, you know, those those artworks uh, would use to uh, codify what it is to follow a police procedural, to follow, you know, how uh, the law enforcement systematically tracks down a criminal at the, at the center of any given story. Uh, this was, M was the director's favorite of his own work and maybe the best example of long blending conspicuous artifice with documentary realism in the service of creating a chilling, entertaining, unforgettably provocative exploration of the manifold dangers of modern life in the big city. Peter Lorre from Casablanca and The Maltese Falcon makes his film debut, or at least his kind of breakthrough role uh, as Hans Beckert, an inconspicuous, cherub-faced petty bourgeois in 1920s Berlin, who's also a, a serial killer of children. The highly organized forces of the police and the criminal underworld, along with the panicked and hysterical general public, all desperately seek to find Beckert before he takes his next victim. Set in tenement courtyards, crowded city streets, smoke-filled police interrogation rooms, and other gloomy urban locales that would become the standard backdrops for American film noir in the decades to come, the movie was shot entirely on constructed sets over six weeks at the Stock and Zeppelin Halle studio just outside Berlin, uh, Long also liked to tell a, a story that uh, may or may not be apocryphal about how the movie was originally entitled uh, Murder Unter Uns, or Murderers Among Us. But when he first uh, brought that title to the Stock and Zeppelin Halle, where he wanted to film some of the larger crowd scenes in the movie, uh, the owners of the studio said that he couldn't film the movie there. This is in 1931. Uh, and he was dubious and said, you know, why why am I not allowed to make a movie about a murderer of children? And they said, oh, of course. Oh, our mistake. Uh, come on in. Uh, you, the studio is free to use. And only then did Long realize on the inside lapel of the coat of one of the owners of the Zeppelin Halle, uh, the uh, uh, swastika, the kind of symbol of the Nazi party, uh, and and realized, at least according to the story, um, that the uh, the Nazi sympathetic owner of the studio was reluctant to let Long make a movie called Murderers Among Us because he thought it was uh, a not-too-subtle criticism of uh, the Nazi party that had been uh, kind of very rapidly accumulating power in the late 1920s uh, and early 1930s before Adolf Hitler was officially appointed Chancellor of the German Reich uh, in January of 1933. So this is uh, Emma Long's first sound movie. Talkies uh, were relatively new. In fact, they were very new uh, in the world of Germany. Uh, they had only uh, started in 1929, which itself was two years after the sound film was invented in the United States. Uh, so 
M was shot two-thirds in sound and one-third silent, uh, integrating a highly expressive soundtrack of mundane city noises, everything from honking cars to clanging cuckoo clocks, uh, with sequences of odd contemplative silence before the forces of order pitted against an agent of chaos. But in a city suspended between the lingering trauma of World War I and the imminent rise of Nazi rule, M's greatest ambiguity lies in just whom exactly the audience should sympathize with and whom they should most fear. Laurie's bug-eyed child murderer is indeed a monster, but is there not something also worrisome about the frenzied masses, the ruthless criminals, the uncompromising police? Gradually and at times reluctantly, Long wrote in the Los Angeles Herald Express in 1947, I've come to the conclusion that every human mind harbors a latent compulsion to murder. While Becker clearly falls into that every-man-turned-monster camp, under the wrong circumstances, could the same happen to me or to you? Uh, so this is uh, Deep Focus on WNHH, uh, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and I'm sharing some some thoughts, some notes, and uh, a recorded intro uh, for the movie M, a 1931 crime thriller by Fritz Long uh, that played as part of the Treasures from the Yale Film Archive series uh, hosted by uh, Yale Film Archivist Brian Meacham uh, and that I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to uh, introduce and write the liner notes for. Uh, so now uh, let's, uh, let's listen to that introduction. Uh, it's around uh, 15 or 16 minutes for, for anyone uh, who was not able to make it out uh, last night and hear a little bit more about uh, my own kind of personal history uh, with this movie, M. Well, first, I want to say a very big thank you to Brian Meacham for asking me to introduce and write the notes for this movie. Uh, as Brian alluded to, I, I host a weekly radio show about movies in the where I interview people in the city, make movies, you teach about movies, you love talking about movies. And I think that New Haven is a much a culturally richer city because of the series that Brian hosts here. It's being watch you know, classic movies on the big screen in the format in which they were originally meant to be seen. Uh, it's truly a special thing, so thank you, Brian. Thanks for being here. Okay, so M, the movie that so many of you have come out to see tonight. Love it. Um, this is uh, Fritz Long's 1931 crime thriller, and Noir, that stars Peter Lorre uh, as a serial killer haunting the streets of 1920s Berlin. Um, in the 87 years uh, since M first came out, a lot of people, a lot of film critics and film scholars and people much smarter and more insightful than I have extolled its virtue. It's kind of universally recognized uh, as a masterpiece of world cinema, as a masterpiece of early sound cinema, of, of German film, particularly the interwar German film. Uh, and I think that a good question to start with uh, when confronted with any kind of quote-unquote masterpiece, is, uh, is who cares? Who, like, stop telling me and me how great this thing is. Like, you know, lists are nice, and, you know, what, I, there's plenty to read about, you know, how wonderfully influential this thing is. Um, but, you know, I just want to come and be entertained and, and you know, take my own stuff. So, uh, if you allow me, I'm going to offer uh, something a little bit different than uh, the interest that usually given on the stage, as insightful as they always are. I'm going to try to give a little bit of my own personal history of this Oddly enough, uh, this movie has really mapped pretty closely onto my own development as someone who loves watching movies and loves talking about movies and loves thinking about movies. Um, so I first saw M uh, in 2009. Uh, I was studying abroad in Berlin as a junior in college. And I saw it as part of a series called Fried Kino, or Open Air Cinema. I think it's pretty familiar uh, to the city 
residents in the 21st century. There's outdoor screen series where you get to watch classic or art house movies in public parks or public squares, you know, things to watch in the summer air. But true to the kind of impossibly hip nature of Berlin, um, these screens do not just take place in parks and public squares, but in all of these like odd, random, completely unconventional, and totally like inappropriate, but really exciting nooks and crannies uh, throughout the entirety of, of West and East Berlin. I remember seeing uh, Bonnie Clyde in this narrow alleyway between two office buildings in Minton, um, and uh, Tarzan for Fall on this, this urban beach, I think it was a thing, but this beach on the east side of Berlin on the Spring River. And I saw M uh, projected, I think it was on the, the back of an outdoor kind of rock climbing gym's wall. Uh, so, so that was uh, kind of my first experience uh, with this classic. And what, you know, what, what did I, what did I get? Um, I was in Berlin, I was studying German in addition to the University of Classic that I was taking at the Friday Institute. Um, and M is an incredible movie uh, to watch when you are keenly aware of not just what people are saying around you, because honestly when you're studying foreign language you really have no idea what most people saying, but how they talk and the many, many different ways uh, that people in a city speak. Um, this is the, kind of, and it turned me on to the incredible diversity of voices that make up the oral landscape of a city. Uh, some of the voices that you are going to hear uh, in, in the next you know, hour and 45, hour 50 minutes um, represent not just uh, people with different backgrounds, different stories, but really is reflective of different socioeconomic conditions that these characters live in, as well as uh, psychological concerns. Um, and I think for the most part, uh, especially for the main character, this differentiation of voice uh, is not used as character, um, but actually tells us something about the world that Mom's trying to describe. So some of the voices you'll hear, uh, you have uh, Elsie's mom, this is the, uh, the tired drawl that turns into the plaintive kind of urgent cries of this washerwoman uh, living in a tenement in uh, probably my favorite are these newsboys who run screaming down the street shouting, Extra Alaska, announcing you know, the special edition of the newspaper that is filled with all these lurid stories about how a serial killer has just taken his next victim. Uh, the nasal kind of reptilian combativeness of these bourgeois, they're chomping on cigars and smoking beer, again talking about the crime. Uh, and also, of course, the, the voiceover police narration. This is a movie from 1931, uh, but creating tropes of film noir and crime series that would be you know, is eminently familiar to anyone who's ever watched uh, Law and Order. Uh, this is you know, the, uh, the careful, efficient, and clearly articulated description of how the police and then the criminals are going about climbing after uh, this serial killer. And then, of course, the last voice I want to make sure to draw attention to in this production uh, is that of, of Hans Becker, played by Peter Boyer, uh, Lori, who Probably familiar face, certainly will be based on you know, that image that we just saw uh, from uh, Casablanca and Maltese Falcon. He's just 27 years old uh, in this movie. This is his breakthrough role. And he plays the, the serial killer, this supernaturally calm, kind of seductive, androgynous figure uh, who, by the end of the movie, is, is literally screeching uh, in fear and hysteria like an animal. Um, the movie really turned me out to the expressive potential of the human voice, which is something that seems you know, pretty basic. Anyone who listens to music or goes to a play should be keenly aware of how much voice can communicate about the person using it. Um, but I think that this coming in 1931, just two years after the first sound film in Germany in 1929, uh, this is a true, uh, kind of sophisticated uh, and lasting experimentation with the different ways that voices can tell us something. Story 
watching it full on screen. Now, the last thing I want to say about that first, like it's quick, that first viewing, uh, is that it's kind of the same lesson of Fragmentino, that series that I mentioned, traveling all around the city, finding these types of families, which are watching movies. And this movie offers a comprehensive survey of city neighborhoods in 1920s Berlin. It's a city kind of exploding in population, there are four and a half million people after World War I. Uh, and this is kind of a call to explore. Uh, now, of course, the, the scenes and settings that Long is documenting here, one, uh, all of this was filmed in a studio, as I wrote in my notes. So it's one of the wonderful kind of artistic ironies of this movie. One that's so gritty and realistic also uh, was completely constructed in the studio just outside of Berlin. Um, but from the, the crowded streets, the tenements, the police departments, the underground bars, and in particular, you know, something that really resonates with me is this distillery at the end of the movie, one that went under the great inflation period of 23, 24, that serves as the backdrop for the climax of uh, this kangaroo court holds Rory uh, culpable for, for the murders that he committed. So, jump forward a few years, uh, my second and the, and the last kind of encounter with M I want to talk about that I had in my own development as a, a movie-going and movie-loving individual. Uh, it's after I moved to New Haven, it's around 2012, uh, and I didn't know anyone, I've seen a lot of movies here, seen, renting a lot of movies from the public library, which has fantastic criterion collection uh, selection, uh, and also listening to a lot of film podcasts and reading a lot of film criticism, oddly enough, that the conversations around movies is kind of what got me into movies in the first place, and Brian mentioned uh, how I've interviewed him a number of times, and you know, I, I, as much as I love sitting and watching a movie, I love hearing someone else's take on it almost, almost as much. And I think that the, the book that really kind of broke my brain in 2012 that, re, that had me kind of re-encounter M is this 1947 book called From Caligari to Hitler, uh, A Psychological History of German Film. It's written by a German uh, film critic, kind of the chief film critic in Germany in the 1920s and early 1930s, Siegfried Krakauer, uh, who would emigrate to Paris and then to the United States. Uh, in 1941. And in 1947, he found himself kind of in the middle of this intellectual industry to try to understand what in God's name just happened. Like, how could an entire nation's worth of people uh, not only allow for, but seemingly support uh, this, you know, most vile totalitarian regimes in uh, Adolf Hitler's Nazi Party uh, to allow for the extermination of six million Jews uh, in concentration camps. Uh, and the, uh, the thesis of this book is a deceptively simple one. And it's almost you know, silly how simple it is, and I know it's been uh, one that has been fought over tremendously since 1947. And it's that his, his argument goes, every movie uh, made in Germany between the end of World War I, 1918, and the rise of Hitler power in 1933 reflects some kind of psychological predisposition of the German people towards totalitarianism. So in the movies themselves, uh, you can see on the screen the German people working out the trauma that they can talk about in the public from having lost 2 million German soldiers in World War I and having 12 million injured soldiers returning to, to the home front. Uh, the, you know, the sight of kind of being thrown from an empire into a republic, uh, the Weimar Republic could only last for you know, those few years in between the wars. Uh, and he says that you know, through the, the style of these movies, through the thematic concerns of these movies, the way that you know, they use um, chiaroscuro, dramatic contrasts of, of dark and light, through their exploration of this idea of the doppelganger, which is a very familiar one to German romantics, the idea that we are two, especially in Murray's final uh, 
a sequence in this movie, he'll talk about how he's forever chased by the kind of evil version of his personality. Uh, and also a, a theme that Bong um, would explore in many of his movies, uh, including Metropolis and also in uh, his American movies like Fury, um, which is not just the capacity for crowds to turn into lynch mobs, but also the kind of inexorability of fate versus uh, individual capacity for free will. Um, this, I mean, this book did a bunch of things to me, but for one, it showed, you know, it showed me that movies can be read as individual entries in larger aesthetic and thematic conversations that are specific to a time, a place, a culture, a history, which is something that, you know, sure, for, you know, the film's sophisticated audience, but for me, that's like an obvious thing. Right? You think about Renaissance art in the context of the Renaissance. You think about, you know, certain, you know, uh, jazz in the context of, kind of early 20th century America. But this one really showed me that, you know, in its conversations with other German art films from the era, whether they fell into the kind of buzzword of expressionism or new activity or data, surrealism, that this movie and Fritz Long's filmography is in conversation with uh, a whole bunch of other really interesting, really provocative works from the Cabinet of Calgary, this 1920 foundational expressionist movie uh, that's in Krakow's title, uh, to everything from Nosferatu, uh, The Last Laugh, uh, to Long's um, and then the, just the audacity of saying that movies represent a place where people can kind of fight out and grapple with the most pressing moral issues of our time. Uh, how did World War II, the rise of the Nazis, the death camps, how did that happen? To look to movies for an answer, I found incredibly exciting and, and brash and something that, uh, however uh, simplistic uh, you know, his reading may, may prove to be, um, I, I think that it's one that I, as a film critic, really admire, uh, that these are relevant texts, not just for enjoyment, but for thinking about the world around us. Um, so as we're, uh, as we're wrapping up this intro, as we're about to you know, uh, jump into Fritz Long's M, I want to point out a few things just for uh, folks to pay attention to that, that uh, you know, I really began to pay attention to after watching M for the first time. Um, and that first is the counterpoint of, of sound and image on the one hand, and of noise and silence on the other. Uh, this movie was filmed two-thirds in sound, uh, one-third in silent, uh, and it shows. Um, part, partly that was because sound equipment was just uh, too expensive to rent in 1931, so early on as the period of talkies in, in, uh, in Germany. Um, but the way that Long will disrupt a completely silent sequence the, my favorite is this militaristic police raid of an underground bar uh, by the sudden shrill whistle of one of the criminals in this bar who's, who's found out that the police are coming and, and shouts frantically, Depolin, Depolin, to announce that the police are here. Um, or Lori kind of trapped in this high angle shot on the street where all these beggars have sussed him out and out that he indeed is the murderer. Uh, with the honk of a car and the sudden pass of a fire truck, uh, he's disappeared. And then, of course, uh, the whistling. Whistling in this movie, uh, as, as uh, Brian wrote in the trivia on the notes, the light motif for Laurie's character is in the hall of not the And uh, listen to when you hear those notes, uh, what they say about the character as he's whistling them, how they change over the course of the movie as he moves from kind of a confidently predatory figure to one uh, who has truly been trapped. Uh, and then the, the last thing I want to leave you all with are, are two brief quotations which offer uh, the, if kind of my takeaway from the Krakow was that, you know, these books, you know, these movies can be read as 
grappling with moral issues. Here are two readings of two responses to, to M uh, in particular and to Long's work in general. Uh, the first uh, goes fantastic against all the claptrap about humanity for the death penalty. Well done. Long will be our director. That was from 1931 from the diary of Joseph Goebbels, uh, who became the propaganda minister for the Nazi power, uh, the Nazi party that came to power. Uh, seen in this an unabashed, uh, enthusiastic support for the death penalty. Uh, and here's another one written uh, three decades later by uh, an American filmmaker, critic, and Peter Bogdanovich. As a creator of nightmares, Long has few peers. His world is one of shadows and night, ominous, haunted, filled with foreboding and violence. The tears he elicits for the damned figures who inhabit it are born from the depth of his personality. So as you watch Peter Lorre as Hans Beckert um, do unspeakably horrible things, and then as you watch him wriggle and squirm and plead for his own humanity in the face of an unflinching mob, uh, ask yourself which of those readings are for you. Um, this one that is, you know, even though it's you know, silly to ask you to sympathize with, you know, girls the Nazi, but seriously, it's difficult watching this movie and not thinking this man deserves the death penalty. So, I leave you with that. M, 1931, by Fritz Long. Enjoy. <laughs>